Welcome to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast, a weekly conversation about mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. For more information or to find a therapist in your area, visit our website at therapyforblackgirls.com. While I hope you love listening to and learning from the podcast, it is not meant to be a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining me for session 348 of the Therapy for Black Girls podcast. We'll get right into our conversation after a word from our sponsors. I've seen quite a few videos on social media recently of young women soliciting help in finding the perfect dress for graduation. Might I suggest you add Macy's to your list? They have lots of options for dresses that will transition perfectly from under your gown to that incredible dinner with family after the ceremony. Check out options from brands like On 34th, Michael Kors, DKNY, and many more. Shop at Macy's.com or in-store. You may have heard that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? Regardless of blood type, every day our blood saves lives and eases the pain of those living with sickle cell. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Buying your first car can make you feel like a superstar as it's a big purchase, but it can take time to get there. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit helps you take control of your finances through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. The loss of a child is often an unimaginable reality for parents everywhere. For those who experience the sudden pain and grief, losing a child can also cause feelings of shame and failure. To shed light on this experience, as well as share resources for bereaved parents, I'm joined today by grief and clinical trauma professional, Dr. Niasha Grayman. Dr. Grayman has over 20 years of clinical experience working with African Americans as an independently licensed LCPC in the state of Maryland. In 2020, she founded a boutique traumatic grief counseling practice specifically for Black women working through bereavement. In our conversation, Dr. Grayman shares ways for parents to honor their child after their passing, strategies for community members to show up for bereaved parents other than the typical, I'm here for you if you need me, and how traumatic grief symptoms can show up differently in Black women. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please share with us on social media using the hashtag TBG in session or join us over in the sister circle to talk more about the episode. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Grayman. 
Oh, thank you for having me, Dr. Joy. I'm a big fan of your work in the podcast. Thank you so much. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your practice. Can you tell me what is traumatic grief and why you decided to center your practice in this? Hmm. So traumatic grief is a response to losing someone. In this sense, I'm thinking about death of a person. I know there are many ways that people can experience grief, but my practice focuses exclusively on death of an individual. So it's a response to that permanent physical rupture that maps onto what we know are symptoms of traumatic stress. And those symptoms can manifest in multiple dimensions of our experience. They can manifest in physical symptoms such as heart palpitations, difficulty sleeping, nightmares. They can manifest in perceptual disturbances like flashbacks. They can manifest in cognitive disturbances like ruminating thoughts and thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore and self-harm. And so my practice focuses on working and companioning Black women who've experienced a, a loss and are exhibiting traumatic grief symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, Dr. Grayman, is there a difference between traumatic grief symptoms versus, I guess, a typical kind of grief reaction? I think so. When I think about reactions to grief, I actually liken them to different stages of hospitalization, if you will. So you think about the highest level of care would be an intensive care unit. And then below that would be your regular inpatient unit. And then below that outpatient care. When I think about traumatic grief, I think of someone at the highest level of care. Their symptoms of distress are really acute. And they're in need of a lot of supportive services. Now, that phase may last for a short period of time, a few weeks, a few months, up to a couple of years. And beyond that, some people may say that you're then stepping into what is called prolonged grief. I don't know how I feel about that. But that's how I differentiate traumatic grief response from a common grief response. 70% of people will not experience a traumatic grief response, but about 30% of the population will experience it. And that percentage increases when the death is sudden, in particular, when it's violent, when the grief is disenfranchised, maybe not acknowledged by the society. These are all things that can increase the likelihood that you're going to have a traumatic grief response. Thank you so much for sharing that. Are there other things that kind of would indicate a response that is considered traumatic grief? Oh, sure. In addition to the flashbacks, nightmares, thoughts of not wanting to be here, self-harm, gastrointestinal issues, really heightened sense of hypervigilance, increased sense of worry. So where your baseline is, you know, this varies person to person, but thinking about your baseline of worry and your baseline of vigilance, that that is significantly increased, a substantial increase in clinginess behaviors, a strong impulse to discuss the loss in an indiscriminate way. So just, I'm at the car wash and I'm talking about the loss with people I don't know. And also, conversely, a really strong urge to avoid discussion of the loss or some additional indicators that someone might be experiencing traumatic grief. But really what I would look for are those physiological and those perceptual disturbances, such as flashbacks and 
the ideas of maybe like feeling disassociated from your body, like the world is a fantasy kind of world or like you're detached and floating above yourself. And then the physiological symptoms such as nightmares, disturbances, those are some of the key things that I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that your practice is primarily with Black women who are experiencing traumatic grief. In your work or in the research, is there anything that you can share about how traumatic grief either looks differently for Black women or how we might be disproportionately impacted by traumatic grief? Uh, That's a really good question. I don't know if we're disproportionately impacted by traumatic grief, but I could hypothesize that we might be because our exposure to trauma within the general population tends to be high along the lines of race. Some of the ways that I think intersects with Black women's experience uniquely is that we're carrying this superwoman complex of really being long-suffering and holding things together. And the idea that we could be impacted by traumatic grief, I think, is one that can be difficult for us to accept. And then related to that, difficult for us to consider as an experience where we should reach out for help. Yeah, because that definitely is where my mind went. You know, I think Black women, because of this superwoman syndrome and lots of other reasons, I think we often have a hard time stopping to acknowledge anything difficult. And so we know even typical grief can be hard, I think, for us to access. So I'm thinking traumatic grief, like, okay, what does this even look like in Black women? And it sounds like it's some of the same kinds of concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are some of the most common misconceptions about grief and grieving? Oh, probably most popular is the idea that there are five stages of grief that gets brought up as a myth that Kubler-Ross developed the five stages through naturalistic observation of people who were dying from a terminal illness. And her theory was really designed to capture that phenomenological experience of dying. I think related to that, another misperception about grief is that Kubler-Ross's stages have no validity. So those experiences that she captures, they are real. It's just that they don't emerge in a linear stage-wise fashion. They may come up all at the same time. There may be a regression. You may not experience some of those symptoms. So I think that in our effort to bust the myth that grief follows a linear stage. We've thrown out the good with kind of like the perfect and that there is utility in thinking about these different types of experiences. I do think that most of the people I work with have experiences of denial and experiences of shock and bargaining and some kind of acceptance and integration at some point. They just, I don't think they follow into a neat stage pattern. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially when people are grieving, like I think why those stages have become so popular is that it offers a little bit of structure to what feels like chaos, right? Absolutely. But I wonder what it's then like talking with clients about the phases they'll go through and this idea that like eventually grief will go away. Because I think people think like once you hit stage five, like, okay, I'm kind of in the clear, but you're saying that it is much more kind of in and out and it ebbs and flows. Yeah. Yeah. An activity that I typically do with clients is the big knot of grief activity. And if you Google this, you'll find it like a ball of grief and it looks like a ball of rubber bands and it has 
all of those so-called stages that Kubler-Ross talks about in addition to other experiences that are common with grief. And it shows that they're all tangled together. And so I might ask a client to identify which of these experiences they're having now and do that at different points in time during our work together so that they have a visual representation of the ways in which their symptoms and their experience ebb and flow and an appreciation for the messiness of grief and that that is normalized and that they shouldn't feel that they do need to follow these steps and that there is a right way to do grief and they are either on the right track or on the wrong track. Mm. Are there any other activities that you find yourself doing pretty often with clients? Oh, sure. Plenty. Another is that I have a card deck that I created of scripture broken down into scriptures focusing on hope and scriptures that focus on limitation. A lot of the women that I work with are practicing Christians and they're women of faith. And I think one of the liabilities in our experience, this actually maps on to your question about the ways in which the experience of grief can be unique for Black women. The majority of us still in this country identify as Christian and identify as religious. And I think that within our religious community, there can be a lot of pressure to focus on an optimism and everything happens for a reason and kind of things that people in a cliche way say map onto a spiritual bypass approach. And it is valuable to introduce or reintroduce or reinforce for clients that a lot of our sacred writings actually speak to suffering within the human condition. So an activity that I might do with a client is have them go through the card deck and separate the deck into scriptures related to hope, scriptures related to lamentation, especially at the beginning of our work together, when stress tends to be most acute, ask a client to draw a card from the lamentation deck, or I may ask them to split the deck into familiar scripture and unfamiliar scripture. Because another thing that happens is that some of the scriptures become so rote in terms of our memory, we're not really taking it in. We're not really sitting with that word. And so it can be helpful to focus on a fresh word that is less familiar. And so it's another way that I might use a card deck. And that's something that I typically do. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So you mentioned traumatic grief can often happen as it relates to like a sudden death or a death that has been violent. And I know we want to talk today a little bit about losing a child, which I think is often sudden. One of the most unimaginable things I think we experience as parents. Can you talk a little bit about what that process looks like when you're working with a client who has lost a child? Yeah. So first I'll share that I'm coming to that work, both as a trained clinician and also as a bereaved mother. I myself lost an infant after three weeks, and I won't tell the whole story of that, but just want your listeners to know that. So in my experience, the first thing that we're working on together is calming the sympathetic nervous system. That in in my experience, The Black women who come to see me are highly distressed, highly emotionally dysregulated, and are exhibiting a number of the symptoms that I described as being symptoms of traumatic stress. So sleep disturbances, nightmares, flashbacks, very high levels of anxiety, feelings of being outside of the body. And so the first... Concern is 
regulation and trying to help clients to ground. And in that sense, we're doing what most best practices for trauma treatment would recommend. We are working on breath work and paced breathing and alternate nostril breathing. And I'm teaching clients those different activities in the session and then asking them to practice it outside of the session. In an effort to regulate the system, I'm likely to recommend a number of nature therapeutic interventions. I also have a nature journal that I give to all of my clients and they have different exercises to do in nature that facilitate mindfulness and a sense of grounding. And we might introduce that in the session as well. So I may be working with the client virtually. My practice is completely virtual and I may be here in this office as I am with you now and have an assigned outdoor space for the client to go to for the session. The entire session may take place at that location. So for example, I'm physically located in the Baltimore metropolitan area. We have a place called Lake Roland that might be familiar to my clients or depending where they are in the state, I'm going to identify outdoor spaces that are within the vicinity of where they live or work. And I may assign them to go to that space for the session. And we might select one of the activities, a mindfulness activity relating to noticing all of one primary color that you see in nature and count the number of times that you see it just to kind of focus that monkey mind that can emerge when you're highly distressed. So it's a concentration exercise. You're getting into the fresh air, which can be energizing. It's known to reduce anxiety and symptoms of depression. So that's what we're working on first. And then thinking about the different types of symptoms that come up with traumatic grief, we're working our way down what I would consider kind of like a scale. So at the top of that would be the physiological symptoms and we're concentrating on that. Then we're concentrating on the perceptual symptoms, the emotional and cognitive symptoms, and then also the social symptoms. But when a client is coming in and sleep disturbance and nightmares is part of their presentation, that's going to take priority. And so things like the nature therapy interventions, the breathwork interventions, those are all actually designed to work to facilitate stabilizing sleep hygiene. Yeah, because we know you can't do very many of the other things that you're talking exactly. about if you're too exhausted or not sleeping well. Exactly. You know, and I would imagine that one of the things that will often come up with clients, especially if a child has died in like an accident or like a SIDS death or is the experience of feeling guilty. Can Absolutely. you talk a little bit about how you might work with a client to manage some of those symptoms? Yeah. So I think one thing that's unique about the loss of an infant or a child, it will bring up the same reactions as any sudden loss. But I think with the loss of a child, what becomes unique and nuanced, especially for a parent, is the idea that somehow you failed in your role, your primary role of protecting the child, thinking about Maslow's hierarchy needs. The very lowest level is the idea of safety and security and meeting someone's physiological needs. Well, if your child dies, you can internalize a sense of failure to have met 
that basic need. And so that becomes, I think, long-term work. And while I offer short-term experience, about 18 sessions that are designed to stabilize the nervous system, that identity work really ends up being a long-term project, possibly multi-years. It could go on and on. It's open-ended because you're really then talking about a renegotiation of an identity and a processing of an important role that you feel you did not live up to. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that, that. That it sounds like it's much more long-term work. That's nothing you're really going to address in six sessions, so to speak. More from our conversation after the break. Attention all last-minute shoppers. Just a reminder that Mother's Day is May 12th. And if you're like me, you're still trying to figure out the perfect gift for the amazing moms in your life. But no worries, Macy's has got you covered. They've got gift guides to make shopping a breeze. Whether you're looking for the perfect pieces for your fashionista mom or for your best friend who's celebrating her very first Mother's Day this year, you can shop by price, by category, and they even have specialty lists to help focus you even more, like a list for the mom who has it all and a list of items that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. Right now, some of this year's hottest items include digital picture frames and Polaroid cameras. With the help of their gift guides, I'm sure you'll find just the right thing. Head on over to Macy's.com slash for the perfect inspiration for Mother's Day. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. Growing up watching media legends like Gwen Ifill and Robin Roberts always gave me the security that stories that matter to me would be told. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. So something else that I think can complicate this picture is if there are other siblings in the home, right? So then you may be grieving as a parent, but also tending to your other kids who may also be grieving. Can you talk a little bit about any advice or suggestions you'd have for parents who might be navigating that kind of a dynamic? Yes, absolutely. I think it's important to remember that 
the surviving children will process grief in different ways at different stages of development. And so you should not think of this as a one and done kind of experience, even for a child. So in the same way that successions probably aren't going to do it for someone experiencing traumatic grief and renegotiating an identity in that sense, the same is true for a child. But my recommendation would be to look for resources that are specifically targeting children. There are a number of counseling centers that specifically offer grief camps for children, and that may be a one-day grief camp experience. Some have overnight camps. Some may have programs that exist over multiple months. And so looking at developmental supports that you can marshal together for your child, I think is really important as you continue to navigate your own grief. And that may be in an individual kind of capacity with a therapist. There are family therapists who can work with the whole family and have that expertise where everybody is navigating grief together as a unit. Your family may prefer to separate out or may prefer to do a combination of both. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that, again, what your child needs is going to vary at different stages and the way that they process and metabolize their experiences of grief are going to be different at different stages. And so one thing I would recommend is not as a parent, not overreacting to any one way the grief is manifesting in the child, but reinforcing the normalization of the experience, and then also having them get support with peers and professionals who are specifically trained to work with children in grief. I am not one, but I would recommend connecting with one. Mm -hmm. Dr. Grayman, you mentioned normalizing that like grief can look lots of different ways. And I think we hear that often, but is there anything that would be more of a concern either as a parent of other siblings or for your own experience, right? As a person who's grieving, any symptoms or things that might be a heightened concern in terms of a grief reaction? I think, again, those trauma reactions for an adult, for sure. With a child, I would think about Increased manifestations of anxiety, some of the same reactions, nightmares would be concerning, talk of not wanting to be here anymore, talk of suicide obviously is always concerning both for the child and for the parents. And at the same time, my approach is minimal institutionalization. And I think a lot of therapists, as soon as they catch wind of any sense or thought of self-harm or not wanting to be here, their own anxiety kicks in and there can be kind of a heightened, like the highest level of intervention, that ICU intervention, which may not be necessary. But again, that is dependent on the therapist and dependent on the family's comfort level. But I would recommend finding therapists who have some comfort and experience and training in working with people who are having thoughts of not wanting to be here or self-harm and not necessarily jump immediately to institutionalization. You know, something else I didn't ask you, Dr. Grayman, that I'm curious about, because this is your focus, I would imagine that you are likely seeing clients on a cadence that is not just week to week, right? If you're kind of managing some of this distress, can you talk a little bit about how your practice might look different than somebody who's not focused on traumatic grief? Yes, absolutely. So again, thinking about kind of those three levels of intervention, that ICU 
inpatient and outpatient. I consider my practice, the entry point is that ICU most intensive. So when I'm first working with clients, we're working together every day during the week, five days. And that again is in service of trying to regulate that nervous system, which has really gone haywire. And so we're spending a lot of intensive time together. And then we titrate down to four days a week and then three days a week. And around the three days a week mark, we check in and see if the client wants to stay at three days a week, which some may for a little while, or if they feel ready to even go down to two days a week and then to traditional once a week therapy. But I would say in my experience, best practices of working with someone who is experiencing acute stress such as that would be a more intense and more frequent kind of relationship. So is there a way that the grief looks different if you lose a child as an infant versus losing a 13-year-old child? There is. I mean, grief reactions are as unique as a fingerprint. And so what that looks like, I I don't think I could even generalize around differences of an infant versus 13 versus your 20-year-old son who died by suicide. They're all sudden and traumatic deaths. And in some sense, they're all disenfranchised deaths. They're deaths that kind of put you outside the social expectations of our communities. And so at every stage, it's a death that can increase sense of isolation, which makes everything more difficult. And they all also share that they're considered off-time deaths. Mm -hmm. So off-time in terms of the natural life cycle. And then beyond that, I think it's very unique. So the idea of, is it more difficult to experience the death of a child who was never actually birthed into the world. So a death of a child in utero, the death of a child who's born still, death to SIDS, death to fatal illness, a cancer, a car accident at 16, death by suicide. I don't think we can say, but they're all off time. They're all sudden And they all tend to lead to a sense of disenfranchisement and a heightened sense of isolation in the experience. So something else we know that often happens after the death of a child is that this puts a significant strain on the relationship between the parents. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with clients in your practice around navigating this as a couple or as a family? Yeah, so I work exclusively with Black women in individual therapy. I do not work with couples. I don't work with the partners and I don't work with whole families. But that doesn't mean that the whole family does not end up being part of the treatment and the experience. An individual is a part of an entire family system. And so that comes in. I think that my approach going into my work with an individual who's part of a couple is that this is going to be hard and I am going to help you to navigate this with your partner. I definitely do not have separation of the couple in mind at all, even as I know what the literature says about how this kind of loss can devastate a couple. I do not go in with that mindset. But we're talking about what 
the woman in the partnership needs. And we're focusing on getting her needs met and not being responsible for getting her partner's needs met. We do talk about resources that may be useful to the partner. Again, if they want couples therapy, I can recommend a couples therapist, but very clear that I only work with the individual. And so we're talking about ways to communicate with each other, to continue to try and spend quality time with each other during a what we would call like a grief break that we need to take breaks sometimes during this process and how they can do that together as a couple thinking of different ways. I'm a big proponent of psychoeducation through podcasts such as Therapy for Black Girls along with others. I may give that to a client to share with their partner as a homework assignment and have them have a discussion about that and see how they receive that information. Some education, if we're talking about a cis-hetero couple, some psychoeducation about stereotypical ways in which men may express their grief differently, which again, stereotypically tends to map on to more action-oriented, more doing, less of the talk therapy, emotional processing. And when that does happen, it tends to happen more through doing. So there is a minimization of blaming each other and kind of like a reality checking of expectations of the way someone should and should not show up in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So we know that one of the hard parts of, I think, processing grief is the special moments, right? So holidays and birthdays that come up after the loved one is no longer there. Can you talk a little bit about navigating that about the child's next birthday or the next holiday season? Yeah, I take that on a case by case basis and I approach that individually because everyone has a different reaction. Oftentimes, the anticipation leading up to the actual day is more anxiety provoking than the actual day is what clients report back. So, you know, when we know that something is coming up, we will bring that up and start to explore how you're feeling about it. Are there any special things you want to do? Ways that you want to engage in ritual remembrance. I do talk about the value of ritual, that it's a way to make meaning. It's a way to focus our attention. It serves as a container for a therapeutic process, but maybe the client is not interested in that. And that's okay as well. A parallel goal of traumatic grief therapy or grief therapy that's not traumatic is this reinvestigation and reconsolidation of who you are in the world and how you're going to move through the world. There's also always like a parallel existential project that's happening with the therapy. So how do you feel about holidays now? Maybe that's changed altogether. Maybe you want to do something completely different, create a new type of holiday, do something special at the holiday, have an empty chair. If a client is looking for ideas. I have plenty of ideas of things that they could try and may ask if any of them feel like they resonate with you. They feel like something you would do organically or feel true to you. Do you want to just go in the room that day and hide under the covers? That's okay too. Just letting people know that there's no one right way to do this. We can explore different ways that people have done it and have said that it's been helpful. And ultimately you are the driver. You're in charge of this journey. 
I may recommend if people are going to someone else's home, take separate cars so that if you feel like you want to leave early, you can leave and not feel like you're trapped at the home. If you're talking about going with your partner, have a signal you guys have come up with that they know, okay, it's time for us to go. But just thinking about different ways to take care of yourself and what that could look like. Because one artifact of grief is that we have a lot of cognitive fog. So some of these things seem very obvious to us, even as we're talking, and they may seem obvious to listeners who are not in the throes of acute grief. But when you're in the throes of it, things that are very obvious when your mind is clear are completely not on your radar. So it can be as simple as, just bringing up possibilities that someone is just not able to generate on their own in that particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mentioned the word disenfranchised several times, Dr. Greenman, and I'm wondering what suggestions you would have for support people outside of the family who has lost a loved one to make it less disenfranchised, right? So how can we kind of remove some of the shame or stigma related to like the loss of a child and really support a family that's struggling? Yeah, I think we've come such a long way from when I went through my own traumatic loss experience. Social media has been a saving grace in this sense. On Instagram, there are a number of accounts that are specifically dedicated to all manners of loss and grief. And those are ways that you can feel less isolated following those accounts. This didn't exist when I was going through my experience, but now we have help texts, which started out as grief texts, and that is incredibly valuable. I buy that for all of my own loved ones in my community who are experiencing a loss, and I also recommend it for my clients because one benefit of the help text subscription is that you can send the link to two to four people within your network and help text will give them recommendations on how to support you, which is amazing because one thing that people always say when they are witnessing a loved one going through the stress of grief is, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And that can be true for someone who even does this work. This is true for myself. When the person is close to you, It is a different situation from when you're working with someone who has one degree of separation. So I use that for myself as well as a reminder of ways to show up for my loved ones. And that is incredibly helpful. Every single person I have given that to or recommended that to said they loved help text. So I highly, highly recommend that. We have Reimagine, which is an online series that offers webinars and different kinds of virtual gatherings. RTZ Hope, Return to Zero Hope, is another organization that focuses specifically on perinatal loss. They offer a number of free support groups for individuals and for couples and for families. Another fantastic resource. There really is a lot out there now. It's not that difficult to find, you know, maybe a one or two day conference or a retreat that is a gathering of parents who have lost children at different stages. We have a lot of options and, and those are absolutely things that I share with clients as well. In addition to online forums, support groups, you can have in-person groups, but some people may be in a position actually where maybe their career or just the nature of their particular circumstance, they're unable to go to a support group in person. And so these other things that are both virtual and sometimes anonymous can be additional sources of support. 
Thank you so much for that. I was not aware of many of those resources, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. So you already mentioned how one of the primary symptoms related to grief is this cognitive fog, right? And I'm curious to hear your thoughts around bereavement leave at work. I feel like I've seen at most you get a whole week off depending on like your relationship to the lost loved one. Can you say a little bit more about like how workplaces can be more supportive in terms of bereavement? Yes. Well, actually, there is an organization, I believe it's called Evermore, and they are lobbying for a minimum 20-day bereavement leave at the workplace. So anyone who is interested in that should follow Evermore. You can follow them on Instagram and get more information on that. But with respect to workplace, I think that the more flexible that a supervisor can be, the better. And flexible with respect to scheduling scheduling so that the person can go see a therapist during the week and not necessarily have to see someone at night or on the weekend. When I experienced my own traumatic loss, I had amazingly supportive colleagues. I'm also a professor of psychology in a department. And the thing that they gave me that was so helpful were grocery cards. Because again, with that brain fog, The idea of meal prep and grocery shopping, everything that we do day to day and take for granted is a big act of labor. So if you have that kind of collegial relationship at your workplace, those kind of instrumental supports can be really helpful. And I think in addition to providing structural leave, those are the kind of supports I would probably most recommend for a workplace which is a structured organizational institutional system. And so when I think about supports at a workplace, I'm not necessarily looking for advocating for my workplace to become a group therapy place or, you know, a place for emotional processing, but the workplace can provide some of those instrumental supports that could make my life easier and kind of soften this journey. And it could be things like gift cards. It could be liberal leave, a flex schedule, schedule, maybe a hybrid schedule. I would look and recommend that workplaces think in terms of structural things that they can do for clients who are experiencing bereavement, especially if their official policy is the prototypical three days off. I'm wondering if you have other suggestions that you've heard from your own experience or even from clients of ways that friends and family can offer maybe some of those instrumental supports that you don't even think that you might need, but that actually become really helpful. Sure. People often talk about the uselessness of the, I'm here if you need me, girl. That does not work during that time. I mean, you're really, again, think in terms of intensive care. Someone in intensive care cannot actually tell you what they need. You need to show up and meet the need. So the very basic needs of coming by or, you know, calling and saying, I am coming by and I am dropping off food. I am coming by and I am picking up the kids and taking them to a movie. I'm coming by and I am cleaning. If you can't do that, so many of our families are separated and dispersed across the country in different states and in different countries. You can call services that can do that. I'm going to research a cleaning service to have someone come in and clean. I'm going to research a nanny service to have someone come or doula service to have someone come 
and take care of you for a little while something to give you a break so that you can step out and get some fresh air. Thinking about processing your own grief, that could be so you can step out, go in your car and park in an undisclosed location and scream your lungs out without having the children witness. But taking initiative is really what people who are acutely distressed need. They don't have the wherewithal necessarily to express to you what they need. Yeah, I appreciate you offering that because I think like you mentioned earlier, people are often like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And some of those very tangible things I think can be really helpful to people. More from our conversation after the break. Attention all last minute shoppers. Just a reminder that Mother's Day is May 12th. And if you're like me, you're still trying to figure out the perfect gift for the amazing moms in your life. But no worries, Macy's has got you covered. They've got gift guides to make shopping a breeze. Whether you're looking for the perfect pieces for your fashionista mom or for your best friend who's celebrating her very first Mother's Day this year, you can shop by price, by category, and they even have specialty lists to help focus you even more, like a list for the mom who has it all and a list of items that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted. Right now, some of this year's hottest items include digital picture frames and Polaroid cameras. With the help of their gift guides, I'm sure you'll find just the right thing. Head on over to Macy's.com slash gift finder for the perfect inspiration for Mother's Day. You may be aware that most people who are Black have O-type blood. O is commonly needed for emergencies and life-saving measures. But did you know one in three of us is a match for patients with sickle cell disease? You, along with the American Red Cross, regardless of your blood type, can help by donating blood. Every day, our blood saves lives and eases the pain for those living with sickle cell. When you donate blood, there is a direct, positive impact within our community. Right now, there is great need for blood donations in the African-American community. Every donation counts and makes a difference in someone's life. Donate blood at Red Cross to help save a life. Black excellence is in our blood. Visit redcrossblood.org slash ourblood to make an appointment now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So can you say a little bit about how you work with clients around honoring their child after their death? Like what kinds of things could be helpful for them to think about, about how to honor their child's life? We do do a lot of work around legacy leaving and remembrance. Again, it becomes personalized. I'll offer a lot of different selections. People who are nature lovers may want to plant a tree or dedicate a tree in honor of the loved one who is deceased. If you're talking about an infant or a baby or a child, oftentimes like a children's museum will allow you to purchase a brick at the museum in the memory of the child or a space within the museum that you can dedicate 
to the child. The ritual of, as I was saying, at a holiday of leaving an open chair for the person who has departed. I do incorporate a lot of expressive art. And so we may engage in painting. There are other, so many resources again out there. I was introduced to a virtual perinatal loss painting session that people could sign up for and paint something that is remembrance of the child, jewelry making, making a crafts book, a scrapbook. There are so many ways, a scholarship, a donation in honor of someone participating in March of Dimes, many, many ways. And again, my job as a therapist is to introduce you to the world of those ways and see if any of them feel like something that you would want to do. It could be as seemingly simple as special walk, a quiet walk you take in a, in a special location, that that's your place where you go and remember your loved one. You know, we know that there is no timeline for grief. And I think that is a part of it that people often struggle with. It's like, oh, it's been two years. Like, why don't I feel better? Can you offer any suggestions for anybody who might be enjoying our conversation and kind of feeling themselves still in the depths of grief? Like what kinds of things might they be able to do to kind of wade through that that wave, so to speak? Yeah. So, I mean, I have to say as a therapist, do not be afraid to reach out for therapy and consider investing in therapy, it can be really helpful to have someone who is connected but not enmeshed companion alongside you, what you're experiencing. And even maybe to check in with a therapist, ask if they feel that what they're experiencing rises to the need or the benefit of therapy. Because again, going back to Black women, I think that we're socialized to deny our needs and that that's an expectation both within our families and the larger society. And so we may have a little bit of a blind spot there around that. But also, again, if you are really autonomous and really introverted in terms of your processing and private, I think an app like Help Text is really helpful. If you are a year in, two years in, please, please, please know that that is well within normal range of experiencing grief. Most grief therapists, grief counselors will say minimum two years. I have heard someone who survived the death of a a child by murder, that it took five years before they even started to feel a little bit like themselves. And so give yourself a lot of grace and reach out to people who have been there and people who work with people who have been there to kind of give yourself a reality check on what you're experiencing. It's probably all within the normal range. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham. I really appreciate all the insights that you've shared as well as the resources. Can you share with us how we can stay connected with you? What is your website as well as any social media channels you'd like to share? Sure. So I am on Instagram at Baltimore Grief and my website is Wisdom Counseling Baltimore LLC. And if you're looking for a perinatal loss therapist, you can find me, of course, on Therapy for Black Girls directory and also Postpartum Support International, their therapist directory, which 
not only includes therapists who specialize in postpartum depression or anxiety or psychosis, but also clinicians who specialize in perinatal loss. So if you are yourself looking for a therapist who specializes in perinatal loss, I would recommend that site. Thank you so much. We'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes. We appreciate you. I appreciate you and I appreciate your work. Thank you. I'm so glad Dr. Grayman was able to join us today for this episode. To learn more about her and the work she's doing, visit the show notes at therapyforblackgirls.com slash session 348. And don't forget to text two of your girls right now and tell them to check out the episode. If you're looking for a therapist in your area, visit our therapist directory at therapyforblackgirls.com slash directory. And if you want to continue digging into this topic or just be in community with other sisters, come on over and join us in the sister circle. It's our cozy corner of the internet designed just for black women. You can join us at community.therapyforblackgirls.com. This episode was produced by Frida Lucas, Elise Ellis, and Zaria Taylor. Editing was done by Dennison Bradford. Thank y'all so much for joining me again this week. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all real soon. Take good care. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rival, every rematch, every rookie debut... Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also empower you with a sense of complete control? Enter Conair Girlbomb your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results made just for women. From the ultimate girl bomb grip and professional grade blades, you don't have to compromise and settle for less. Conair Girl Bomb equips you with the precision and power previously reserved for men's grooming tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb. Available at conairgirlbomb.com or a retailer near you.